Chapter 15, Part 1 of The Shades of the Wilderness. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Packard of Western Colorado. The Shades of the Wilderness by Joseph A. Altscheller. Chapter 15 The Wilderness. Part 1. When night settled down over the wilderness, the two armies lay almost face to face on a long line. The preliminary battle on the whole had favored the Confederacy. Hill had held his ground and Ewell had gained, but Grant had immense forces, and, though naturally kind of heart, he had made up his mind to strike and keep on striking no matter what the loss. He could afford to lose two men where the Confederacy lost one. Harry, like many others, felt that this would be the great northern general's plan. Tomorrow's battle might end in southern success, but Grant would be there to fight the following day with undiminished resolution. He was as sure of this as he was sure that the day would come. The night itself was somber and sinister, the heavens dusky and a raw chill in the air. Heavy vapors rose from the marshes, and clouds of smoke from the afternoon's battle floated about over the thickets, poisoning the air as if with gas, and making the men cough as they breathed it. It made Harry's heart beat harder than usual, and his head felt as if it were swollen. Everything seemed clothed in a black mist with a slightly reddish tint. A small fire had been built in a sheltered place for the commander-in-chief and his staff, and the cooks were preparing the supper, which was of the simplest kind. While they ate the food and drank their coffee, the darkness increased, with the faint lights of other fires showing here and there through it. Around the muddy places frogs croaked in defiance of armies, and from distant points came the crackling of skirmishers prowling in the dusk. Harry's horse, saddled and bridled, was tied to a bush not far away. He knew that it was to be no night of rest for him or any other member of the staff. Lee would be sending messages continually. Longstreet, although he had been marching hard, was not yet up on the right, and he and his veterans must be present when the shock of Grant's mighty attack came in the morning, Hill, thin and pale, yet suffering from the effects of his wounds, but burning as usual with the fire of battle, rode up and consulted long and earnestly with Lee. Presently he went back to his own place nearer the center, and then Lee began to send away his staff one by one with messages. Harry was among the last to go, but he bore a dispatch to Longstreet. He had heard that Longstreet had criticized Lee for ordering Pickett's famous charge at Gettysburg, but if so, Lee had taken no notice of it, and Longstreet had proved himself the same stalwart fighter as of old. He and the prompt arrival of his veterans had enabled Bragg to win Chickamauga, and it was not Longstreet's fault that the advantage gained there was lost afterward. Now Harry knew that he would be up in time with his seasoned veterans. As the young lieutenant rode away, he saw General Lee walking back and forth before the low fire, his hands clasped behind him, and his eyes as serious as those of any human being could be. Harry appreciated the immensity of his task, and in his heart was a sincere pity for the man who bore such a great burden. He was familiar with the statement that to Lee had been offered the command of the northern armies at the beginning of the war, but believing his first duty was to his state, he had gone with Virginia when Virginia reluctantly went out of the Union. Truly, no one could regret the war more than he, and yet he had struck giant blows for its success. 
A moment more and the tall figure standing beside the low fire was lost to sight. Then Harry rode among the thickets in the rear of the Confederate line, and it was a weird and ghastly ride. Now and then his horse's feet sank in mud, and the frog still dared to croak around the pools, making on such a night the most ominous of all sounds. It seemed a sort of funeral dirge for both north and south, a croak telling of the ruin and death that were to come on the morrow. Damp boughs swept across his face, and the vapors rising from the earth and mingled with the battle smoke were still bitter to the tongue and poisonous to the breath. Rotten logs crushed beneath his horse's feet, and Harry felt a shiver as if the hooves had cut through a body of the dead. Riflemen rose out of the thickets, but he always gave them the password and rode on without stopping. Then came a space where he met no human being, the gap between Hill and Longstreet, and now the wilderness became incredibly lonely and dreary. Harry felt that if ever a region was haunted by ghosts, it was this. The dead of last year's battle might be lying everywhere, and as the breeze sprang up, the melancholy thickets waved over them. He was two-thirds of the way toward the point where he expected to find Longstreet when he heard the suff of a hoof in the mud behind him. Harry listened, and hearing the hoof again, he was instantly on his guard. He did not know it, but the character of the night and the wild aspect of the wilderness were bringing out all the primeval and elemental qualities of his nature. He was the great borderer Henry Ware in the Indian-haunted forest, feeling with a sixth sense, even a seventh sense, the presence of danger. He was following a path scarcely traceable, used by charcoal burners and woodcutters. But when he heard the hoof a second time, he turned aside into the deepest of the thickets and halted there. The hoofbeat came a third time, a little nearer, and then no more. Evidently the horseman behind him knew that he had turned aside and was waiting and watching. He was surely an enemy of great skill and boldness, and it was equally sure that he was Shepard. Harry never felt a doubt that he was pursued by the formidable Union spy, and he felt, too, that he had never been in greater danger as Shepard, at such a moment, would not spare his best friend but he was not afraid. Danger had become so common that one looked upon it merely as a risk. Moreover, he was never cooler or more ample of resource. He dismounted softly, standing beside his horse's head, holding the reins with one hand and a heavy pistol with the other. He suspected that Shepard would do the same, but he believed that his eyes and ears were the keener. The man must have been inside the Confederate lines all the afternoon. Probably he had seen Harry riding away, and, deftly appropriating a horse, had followed him. There was no end to Shepard's ingenuity and daring. Harry's horse was trained to stand still indefinitely, and the young man, with the heavy pistol, who held the reins, was also immovable. The silence about him was so deep that Harry could hear the frogs croaking at a distant pool. He waited a full five minutes, and now, like the wild animals, he relied more upon ear than eye. He had learned the faculty of concentration, and he bent all his powers upon his hearing. Not the slightest sound could escape the tightly drawn drums of his ears. He was motionless a full ten minutes, nor did the horse beside him stir. It was a test of human endurance, the capacity to keep himself absolutely silent, but with every nerve attuned, while he waited for an invisible danger. And those minutes were precious, too. The value of not a single one of them could have been measured or weighed. It was his duty to reach Longstreet at speed, because the general and his veterans must be in line in the morning when the battle was joined. 
yet the incessant duel between Shepard and himself was at its height again, and he did not yet see how he could end it. Harry felt that it must be essentially a struggle of patience, but when he waited a few minutes longer, the idea to wait with ears close to the earth, one of the oldest devices of primitive man, occurred to him. It was fairly dry in the bushes, and he lay down, pressing his ear to the soil. Then he heard a faint sound, as if someone crawling through the grass, like a wild animal stalking its prey. It was Shepard, of course, and Harry planned his campaign. Shepard had left his horse and was endeavoring to reach him by stealth. Leaving his own horse, he crept a little to the right, and then rising carefully in another thicket, he picked out every dark spot in the gloom. He made out presently the figure of a riderless horse, standing partly behind the trunk of an oak, larger than most of those that grew in the wilderness. Harry knew that it was Shepard's mount, and that Shepard himself was some distance in front of it, creeping toward the thicket which he supposed sheltered his foe. There was barely enough light for Harry to see the horse's head, and regretfully he raised his heavy pistol. But it had to be done, and when his aim was true he pulled the trigger. The report of the pistol was almost like the roar of a cannon in the desolate wilderness, and it made Harry himself jump. Then he promptly threw himself flat upon his face. Shepard's answering fire came from a point about thirty yards in front of the horse, and the bullet passed very close over Harry's head. It was a marvelous shot to be made merely at the place from which a sound had come, and it passed in a flash, and the next moment Harry heard the sound of a horse falling and kicking a little. Then it too was still. He remained only half a minute in the grass. Then he began to creep back, curving a little in his course toward his own horse. He did not believe that Shepard's faculty of hearing was as keen as his own, and he moved with the greatest deafness. He relied upon the fact that Shepard had not yet located the horse, and if Harry could reach it quickly, it would not be hard for him, a mounted man, to leave behind Shepard dismounted. It might be possible, too, that Shepard had gone back to see about his own horse, not knowing that it was slain. He saw the dusky outline of his horse, and, rising, made two or three jumps. Then he snatched the reins loose sprang upon his back, and, lying down upon his neck to avoid bullets, crashed away, reckless of bushes and briars. He heard one bullet flying near him, but he laughed in delight and relief as his horse sped on toward Longstreet. He did not diminish his speed until he had gone two or three miles, and then, knowing that Shepard had been left hopelessly behind, even if he had attempted pursuit, he brought his horse down to a walk and laughed. There was a bit of nervous excitement in the laugh. He had outwitted Shepard again. He had never seen the man, but it did not enter his mind that it was not he. Each had scored largely over the other from time to time, but Harry believed that he was at least even. He steadied his nerves now and rode calmly toward Longstreet, coming soon upon his scouts, who informed him that the heavy columns were not far behind, marching with stalwart step to their appointed place in the line. But it was Harry's business to see Longstreet himself, and he continued his way toward the center of the division where they told him the general could be found. He rode forward and in the moonlight recognized Longstreet at once, a heavy-set, bearded man, mounted on a strong bay horse. He had a very small staff, and he was the first to notice the young lieutenant advancing. He knew Harry well, having seen him with Lee at Gettysburg and with Jackson before. He stopped and said abruptly, you come from the commander-in-chief, do you not? Yes, sir, replied Harry, and I've been coming as fast as I could. He did not deem it necessary to say anything about his encounter with Shepard. There has been heavy fighting. What are his orders? 
Harry told him, also giving him a written message which the general read by the light of a torch and aid held. You can tell General Lee that all my men will be in position for battle before dawn, said the Georgian crisply. Even as he spoke, Harry heard the heavy, regular tread of the brigades marching forward through the wilderness. He saluted Longstreet. I shall return at once with your message, he said. But Harry, having had one such experience, was resolved not to risk another. He would make a wider circuit in the rear of the army. Shepard, on foot, and anxious to avenge his defeat, might be waiting for him, but he would go around him. So, when he started back, he made a wide curve, and soon was in the darkness and silence again. He had a good horse, and his idea of direction being very clear, he rode swiftly in the direction he had chosen. But his curve was so great that when he reached the center of it, he was so far in the rear of the army that no sound came from it. If the skirmishers were still firing, the reports of their rifles were lost in the distance. Where he rode, the only noises were those made by the wild animals that inhabited the wilderness, creatures that had settled back into their usual haunts after the armies had passed beyond. Once a startled deer ran from a clump of bushes and crashed away through the thickets. Rabbits darted from his path, and an owl, wondering what all the disturbance was about, hooted mournfully from a bough. Long before dawn, Harry reached the southern sentinels in the center and was then passed to General Lee, who remained at the same camp, sitting on a log by some smothered coals. Several other members of his staff had returned already, and the general, looking up when Harry came forward, merely said, Well, I have seen General Longstreet, sir, said Harry, and he bids me tell you that he and his men will be in position before dawn. He was nearly up when I left, and he has also sent you this note. He handed the note to General Lee, who, bending over the coals, read it. Everything goes well he said with satisfaction. We shall be ready for them. What time is it, Peyton? Five minutes to four o'clock, sir. Then I think the attack should come within an hour. Perhaps before daybreak, sir? Perhaps. And even before the sun begins to rise, it will be like twilight in this gloomy place. Grant, in truth, prompt and ready as always, had ordered the advance to be begun at half-past four. But Meade, asking more time for arrangements, and requesting that it be delayed until six, he had consented to a postponement until five o'clock and no more. Harry had one more message to carry, a short distance only, and on his return he found the Invincibles posted on the commander-in-chief's right, and not more than two hundred yards away. "'You must be the bodyguard for the general,' he said to Colonel Leonidas Talbot. "'There could be no greater honor for the Invincibles, nor could General Lee have a better guard.' "'I'm sure of that, sir.' "'What's happening, Harry?' "'Tell us what's been going on in the night.' Our line of battle has been formed. General Longstreet and his men on the right are soon to be in touch with General Hill. I returned from him a little while ago. I can't yet smell the dawn, but I think the battle will come before then. Harry rode back and resumed his place beside Dalton. The troops everywhere were on their feet, cannon and rifles ready, because it was a certainty that the two armies would meet very early. In fact, the Army of Northern Virginia began to slide slowly forward, it was not in the habit of these troops to await attack. Lee nearly always had taken the offensive, and the motion of his men was involuntary. They felt that the enemy was there and they must go to meet them. What time is it now? whispered Dalton. Harry was barely able to discern the face of his watch. Ten minutes to five, he replied, and the dawn comes early. It won't be long before Grant comes poking his nose through the wilderness. Harry was silent. A few minutes more and there was a sudden crackle of rifles in front of them. The dawn isn't here, but Grant is, 
said Harry. The crackling fire doubled and tripled, and then the fire of the southern rifles replied in heavy volume. The lighter field guns opened with a crash, and the heavier batteries followed with a rolling thunder. Leaves and twigs fell in showers, and men fell with them. The deep northern cheer swelled through the wilderness, and the fierce rebel yell replied. Gray dawn, rising as if with effort over the sodden wilderness, found two hundred thousand men locked fast in battle. It might have been a bright sun elsewhere, but not here among the gloomy shades in the pine barrens. The firing was already so tremendous that the smoke hung low and thick, directly over the tops of the bushes, and the men, as they fought, breathed mixed in frightful vapors. Both sides fought for a long time in a heavy, smoky dusk that was practically night. Officers coming from far points led compass in hand, having no other guide save the roar of battle. As the southern leaders had foreseen, Grant was throwing in the full strength of his powerful army, hoping with superior numbers and better equipment to crush Lee utterly that day. The great northern artillery was raking the whole southern front. Hancock, the superb, was hurling the heavy northern masses directly upon the main position of the south. He had half the army of the Potomac, and at the other points Warren, Wadsworth, Sedgwick, and Burnside were advancing with equal energy and contempt of death. Fiercer and fiercer grew the conflict. Hancock, remembering how he had held the fatal hill at Gettysburg and resolved to win a complete victory now, poured in regiment after regiment. But in all the fire and smoke and excitement and danger, he did not neglect to keep a cool head. Hearing that a position of Longstreet's corps was near, he sent a division and numerous heavy artillery to attack it driving it back after a sanguinary struggle of more than an hour. Then he redoubled his attack upon the southern center, compelling it to give ground, though slowly. Harry felt that gliding movement backward, and a chill ran through his blood. The heavy masses of Grant and his powerful artillery were prevailing. The strongest portion of the southern army was being forced back, and a gap was cut between Hill and Longstreet. Had Hancock perceived the gap that he had made, he might have severed the southern army, inflicting irretrievable retreat. But the smoke and dusk of the wilderness hid it, and the moment passed into one of the great ifs of history. Harry on horseback witnessed this conflict, all the more terrible because of the theater in which it was fought. The batteries and the riflemen alike were frequently hidden by the thickets. The great banks of smoke hung low, only to be split apart incessantly by the flashes of fire from the big guns. But the bullets were more dangerous than the cannonballs and shells. They whistled and shrieked in thousands and countless thousands. Lee sat on his horse, impassive, watching as well as he could the tide of battle. Messengers covered with smoke and sweat had informed him of the gap between Hill and Longstreet, and he was dispatching fresh troops to close it up. Harry saw the Invincibles march by. The two colonels at their head beheld Lee on his white horse, and their swords flew from their scabbards as they made a salute in perfect unison. Close behind them rode St. Clair and Happy Tom, and they too saluted in like manner. Lee took off his hat in reply, and Harry choked. About to die, we salute thee, he murmured under his breath. Then with a shout the Invincibles, their officers at their head, plunged into the fire and smoke, and were lost from Harry's view. But he could not stay there long and wonder at their fate. In a few minutes he was riding to Longstreet with a message for him to bear steadily toward Hill, that the gap might be closed entirely and as soon as possible. He galloped behind the lines. 
and bullets fell all around him, and often a shell tore the earth. The air had become more bitter and poisonous. Fumes from swamps seemed to mingle with the smoke and odors of burnt gunpowder. His lips and his tongue were scorched, but he kept on without exhaustion or mishap and reached Longstreet, who had divined his message. The line will be solid in a few minutes, he said, and while the battle was still at its height on the long front, he touched hands with Hill. Then both drove forward with all their might against Hancock, rushing to the charge with the southern fire and recklessness of death that had proved irresistible on so many fields. The advance, despite the most desperate efforts of Hancock and his generals, was stopped. Then he was driven back. All the ground gained at so much cost was lost, and the southern troops, shouting in exultation, pushed on, pouring in a terrible rifle fire. Longstreet, in his eagerness, rode a little ahead of his troops to see the result. Turning back, he was mistaken in the smoke by his own men for a northern cavalryman, and they fired upon him just as Jackson had been shot down by his own troops in the dusk at Chancellorsville. The leader fell from his horse, wounded severely, and the troops advancing to victory became confused. The rumor spread that Longstreet had been killed. There was no one to give orders, and the charge stopped. Harry and a half-dozen others who had seen the accident or heard of it galloped to Lee, who at once rode into the very thick of the command, giving personal orders, and sending his aides right and left with others. The whole division was reformed under his eye, and he sent it anew to the attack. End of chapter 15, part 1. Recording by Michael Packard of Western Colorado.